Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. We're looking back at the past decade in music on All Songs Considered, and we've worked our way up to the year 2014. I'm Robin Hilton. I'm here with NPR Music's Jacob Gantz. Robin. And... Rodney Carmichael. Hey, what up, Robin? Welcome. Thank you. And we're going to start with a song that actually came out in 2013, but had its moment, a very long moment in 2014, Let It Go, from the soundtrack to the Disney movie Frozen. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like queen. Jacob Gantz, why are we talking about Let It Go from Frozen? We're talking about Let It Go because for the first three months of 2014, Let It Go was a huge, huge song, and Frozen was the number one album in the country off the back of this song. I mean, it was coming out of the holidays. Frozen was a huge movie. This song started climbing the charts, not in the version by Demi Lovato that Disney who put out the movie and the soundtrack thought was going to have the pop version of Let It Go that would chart the actual song from the movie by Adina Menzel. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. This song just, it it speaks really clearly to a super, super basic need that young people have. I mean, it's dramatic and it's huge and it's one person standing alone against the elements and the world saying, like, I exist and want to be taken seriously. And if you have spent any time with, with a child, like, anywhere between the age of 3 and 13, that is a thing that they feel extremely strongly, basically all the time. Take me seriously, I exist. Why aren't you paying more attention to me? Why aren't you seeing me the way that I need to be seen? about how that song is specifically speaking to a moment in the life of of the audience for that movie, which is tweens, kids that aren't quite teenagers yet, can understand some of the sophistication in the relationships in that movie. But it's about a moment of transformation in a a young person's life and realizing that you have these powers within you, whether they are things that you are ashamed of or afraid of, that you can claim and put to use. I, I honestly, honestly, I normally gobble this sort of stuff up. I like musicals and I love Disney and all that stuff. I just found this to be so comically melodramatic and oversung and just covered in this mountain of sugar. I just, I just couldn't, couldn't take it. I mean, that's Disney, though. I mean, that's why these songs stick in the brains of young boys and girls. They do their job exceptionally well. And these, the song is written by Bobby Lopez, who is a Broadway songwriter, and, and his wife, Kristen. 
You almost make me want to go back and listen to it again, but <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen. <laughs> Give it time, yeah. My kids haven't discovered it's out there yet. Yeah, mine but. have moved on to Moana, so. Well, also at the top of the year in January, we had the Grammys, and the Grammys that year in 2014 uh, reminded us about this. And this is uh, Same Love by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis from the record The Heist. When I was in the third grade, I thought that I was gay because I could draw. My uncle was and I kept my room straight. I told my mom, tears rushing down my face. She's like, Ben, you've loved girls since before pre-K. So the, the Recording Academy has a long and storied history of baffling fans and music critics with how they dole out awards and who they give them to. Um, and they continued that tradition. <laughs> in January 2014, by, by giving uh, just this armful of Grammys to Macklemore and Lewis, um, part of the reason it was so baffling, it was for a record that came out in 2012, and that forced people like they do just about every year to try to figure out, wait a minute, what makes a, a record eligible for the Grammys in 2014? But Rodney, maybe you can tell us what happened. Yeah, the Macklemore Grammy win is was really the start of a conversation that I think has continued all the way through to this year. So Macklemore basically wins the Best Rap Album Grammy over a couple of other nominees, namely Kendrick Lamar, whose major label debut, Good Kid, Mad City, critically heralded, commercially did really well. I mean, he's looked at as the new savior of rap taking this this form of gangster west coast gangster rap and into a totally new direction it's it's cinematic it's coming of age and it's 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 the greatest rap album of the year easily and macklemore wins not just rap album macklemore won uh rap song of the year and or best new artist and yeah and something else in the rap category too i think best rap performance yeah best rap song best new artist best rap album yeah, so he he bested in every category, which you know nobody nobody has looked to the Grammys to be the determiner of what's best in hip hop ever. But still, when this kind of stuff happens, it's it's hurtful, it's it's shocking to some degree, and in the age of social media, the backlash is real. So, what 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 transpired after though was was the new take, the new twist, right? Which is Macklemore apologizing to Kendrick via text and then disseminating his text via Twitter, I believe, at the time. Like he screenshotted his text message to Kendrick Lamar in a way that everybody could see that he was texting with Kendrick Lamar, apologizing for having just beat him in all of these rap categories at the Grammys. Exactly. It was shocking. And like he said in in his text to Kendrick Lamar at the time, it's weird and sucks that I robbed you. And, you know, not not to even throw in the fact that the the name of his album at the time was The Heist, <laughs> you know, so this thing had... I guess I didn't think of that. <laughs> it had all kind of ironic layers, right? And so, you know, Kendrick commented later, but, but everybody commented. I mean, Drake commented. Everybody in hip-hop who was nominated at the time and, and, and you know, commenters, it, it became the talking point. And really kind of like the culmination of the Grammys getting hip-hop and to a large degree black music wrong for so many years. And it's funny that we're talking about this in 2017 because 
The Grammys just released their nominations for 2018, and for the first time in a long time, they feel like they've gotten hip-hop much more right than they ever have. And I feel like it's largely because this conversation has been, you know, hounding them for the past three, four years. It's hard to feel sorry for Macklemore for, like, winning a bunch of awards and, 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 you know, and then the backlash kind of burying him for this. But it does sort of feel like that. You're right. Like, that without this having happened, the Grammys might not have ever had to confront the fact that they were just... It, it was such an easy, stupid thing for them to, 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 to have possibly avoided, right? Like, they... It should have been obvious. It should have been obvious that this would have made people angry. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 it's... Well, first off... I think we, we definitely need to acknowledge the fact that this is not just a, a hip-hop and black music problem, right? The Grammys has this problem with a lot of its categories. It's, it, it speaks to the makeup of the Recording Academy that, you know, it kind of leans older and... Establishment. Exactly. And so these genre, genres that are driven by youth culture, the way hip-hop is... A lot of times they're just out of the loop. They just don't know. And it's reflected in a way that just kind of has been robbing their credibility all of these years. It, it seems like they're, they're trying to consciously do better about it. This this was one of a string of things that I think happened leading all the way up to, to um, obviously, Beyonce being bested by Adele at the 2017 awards show. Wait, but, so you're saying they didn't learn that? They, it, it took a while, you know. The learning curve was steep, I guess. Yeah, right. well, we can say we can hope the uh, that Macklemore was the uh, the the golden gramophone sacrificed on the altar of the Grammys, getting a little bit woke. Nice. I mean, and I think it, I think hip hop is at a point where it's just too big to ignore. You know, this is a genre that was coming into its apex in terms of pop culture, and definitely this year it, it has, but. You know, even starting around 2014, you could start to see that shift taking place. And for the Grammys to be so off point in a contemporary conversation, it just it just was a bad look. And and again, social media, I think, gets all of the credit, not only because that ended up being how Macklemore disseminated his, you know, apology uh, t- tweet or text, but because the backlash is is so, you know, immediate and, and, and so impossible to hide from that I think it, it it forced a conversation on on the on the recording academy you know some people might say he didn't have to apologize um, you know on, on one hand you got to give Macklemore a lot of credit because he was this artist in this genre where he was able to recognize a lot of the privilege that he had and talk about it in ways that white artists have not been able to have not been able to articulate but at the same time I think in some ways he kind of painted himself into a corner or at least he seems to feel like he did over time and I think you know this this is kind of a reflection of him kind of grappling with that in the moment and you know it's kind of hard to to say like Jacob said what what the right way to do it was I guess the best thing would have been if he had done said something on stage which is what he, what he said he meant to do in his original text to Kendrick but short of that, you know, it was it was easy to be critical of, of the situation. I heard somebody describe Macklemore's music as the after school special of rap. <laughs> that's not, pretty good. And I that's thought totally I was like, man, that's 
that's pretty that's good. spot on. I mean, Macklemore <laughs> makes rap music for people that are not fans of rap. It's easily accessible, and you can understand why the the huge pop appeal is there. But yeah, for hip hop fans, it can be frustrating to see this artist that's doing what almost feels like paint by numbers. And I'm not taking any any talent away from Macklemore, especially when he's collaborating with Ryan Lewis. I think they make beautiful music. But I think Macklemore would even acknowledge the fact that some of the a lot of the complexity that other artists are playing with he doesn't necessarily have to in order to get the same or more accolades just because he draws in an audience that's just different. It's just a different audience to hip-hop, and it's the kind of audience that will make him a much more popular artist because it's a mainstream audience. So, you know, and all of that stuff is is is, is part and parcel of everything that he talks about with songs like White Privilege, which makes him such an interesting artist at the same time. That he's willing to grapple with those things and in grappling with them doesn't quite untie himself from the things. I mean, he ties himself even tighter in knots. Yeah. Yeah, he can't ever he can't ever get loose from this thing. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Support for NPR Music's 10th anniversary and the following message come from Isotope, makers of Spire Studio, the portable multi-track recording system that lets you easily capture, mix, and edit professional quality songs wherever and whenever inspiration strikes. With built-in Wi-Fi, Spire Studio seamlessly connects to the Spire app, so you can ditch the cables to collaborate and share with bandmates and fans around town or around the world. Learn more at spire.live. I'm Robin Hilton. It's All Songs Considered. We're looking back at the year 2014 as we celebrate NPR Music's 10th anniversary. I'm here with Rodney Carmichael and Jacob Gans. We go now to Coachella 2014 uh, and this band. This is the kind of music that you just walk around shaking your head to, sort of like in disbelief. <laughs> it's Outcast. Outcast reunited uh, at Coachella in 2014. We've talked a lot in, in these podcasts about artists who've inexplicably disappeared and then returned after long breaks. There was My Bloody Valentine and Daft Punk and Bowie. And then Outcast finally comes back after nearly a decade and shows up at Coachella. Rodney, maybe you can remind us of how important Outcast was in the music world at the time uh, they sort of disappeared and what it meant to have them gone for so long. Man, Outkast was the most important hip-hop group of arguably of all time at that particular moment when they stepped away. Now, their career, they had they had weirdly sort of apexed, right, with the with the double album Speaker Box The Love Below and the uh, the follow-up to that was a, a weird thing because it was half an album, it was half a soundtrack to a film that they had been working on for many years, and it was the first Outkast album that didn't take another peak from the previous release. That didn't didn't. They open. didn't just keep climbing exactly. after that. Yeah. Yeah. So 
they kind of went out on a on a weird note in in some way at that point but you know it was it was basically Andre 3000 I think stepping away and deciding that he didn't want to do music anymore that he wanted to play with other artistic stuff whether it be film you know it's funny in recent interviews that have come out just this year he's talked about this nervous condition that he had and he was struggling with at that time that we didn't know about as fans at the time it's kind of enlightening when you look back on the period to think that he had it was more than just you know disgruntled artist or frustrated artist or i'm tired of collaborating with my homie of the last since that I've been collaborating with since I was 17 type of vibe that that every artist goes through but to still walk out at the at the peak of the career you know where they won album of the year grammy which is practically unheard of for a hip hop act and where they they sold a di- they they made diamond sales with with the double album I mean it was crazy the critical acclaim the commercial success and yeah, they kind of vanished. Andre vanished. And they came back for this reunion tour. Big Boy talked him into it. And he it was He didn't come all the way back. Uh, yeah, exactly. It was <laughs> it was it was so awkward that first performance in a way that was as epic as it would have been, I think if it was a great performance, you know, because you could see, you could literally see Andre on stage kind of struggling with whether or not to embrace this celebrity, whether or not to embrace this return, whether or not to embrace outcast, you know, which is what everybody defines him as and has been clamoring for him to be something that he's been fighting or or not wanting to be for more than a decade. It was it was so fascinating to me. I know a lot of people were really disappointed in the performance at the time, but as a fan and as somebody who never really appreciated people always asking for new music when I feel like they gave us so much music to contemplate and comprehend for forever, for a lifetime. I mean, I'm still I'm still ripping apart outcast music like it's brand new. But to see him kind of struggling artistically and 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 on stage like that. I mean, I feel like it was it was the greatest thing ever. I don't know, it's some kind of weird ironic thing for me, but it's it's just it's just such an honest moment, right? I mean, yeah. and that's that's when we connect on the deepest level with the artists we love. When you feel that they're allowing themselves to be vulnerable in front of you. Definitely. Yeah, yeah it almost seemed like he wanted to try to turn that moment that is scripted in some ways, right? Like it's it that they're elder statesmen now they have this bank of like incredible hits they don't have new music that they're playing in front of people it's not a reunion for you know with with a new album there's a way that it's supposed to go right like they're supposed to sort of be a classic rock act at this point and he mm-hmm. you could see him trying to figure out whether he could change it into something else whether he could make a statement about art or about commerce or something that he knew that he was engaged in in this moment but he didn't he didn't feel totally comfortable with yeah in the, in the classic moment when he turned his back on the stage i think that was to perform hey uh turned um, his back on the audience on you the mean? audience i'm sorry yeah. yeah he turned his he turned his back on the audience i, I believe to perform hey uh um which is a song that he's talked about over the years you know hating in hindsight um but yeah, that 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 struggle to me was 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 so real. I appreciated that he would be that honest in the moment. But he did figure out 
from that show how to like Jacob says, how to make some of those statements, those artistic statements, those statements on commerce, those those stay and and I I think the simplest way that he found to make it was to wear those jumpsuits throughout the tour that had different messages on them. Um, yeah, they went on and did an, quite a, a number of uh, festival performances throughout the, that entire year. Exactly, exactly. And he they rebounded, and I, I saw a couple of those shows in Atlanta and in Georgia. They were great shows. He found a way to have fun with it, and I think he was probably sacrificing a lot and doing and trying to trying to make up for his you know long time absence to his partner big boy and and kind of you know bite the bullet but it ended up being such a sweet tour i have one more comeback that i want to talk about in in on this episode but before i get to that let's talk vinyl real quickly uh jacob i get to do my rant you can do your you can do your spiel because you know people have been saying (laughs) it's the year of vinyl this is the year it's the rebirth of vinyl we've been saying that for a decade now where are we in that discussion in 2014 where we're at in that discussion is it's the peak of the vinyl revival. Um, you know, for the basically the entirety of the time that NPR Music has been alive since since around 2005, 2006, sales of vinyl increased every year. Vinyl never really entirely went away, but for a long time, it new music didn't get pressed on vinyl. And then all of a sudden, new music starts getting pressed on vinyl about the middle of the last decade. And then sales start growing and continue to grow. And People start noticing that, look, it's like a 30% increase year over year. It's a 50% increase year over year. And those numbers are staggering. But I think the thing to keep in mind through this entire time is that the numbers overall are very, very small. The Vinyl Revival was a real thing. It was a movement. It was people who were turned off by everything else being on MP3 or eventually on on streaming services, being ephemeral, being un, completely untouchable, and wanting a physical thing that they could hang on to that they could look at while it played they could hang on their wall if they didn't even own a record player that said it was a very very small market and the vinyl revival as it was really did peak in 2014 i mean vinyl's never going to go away the way that we thought that it was in in the era when the cd was born but um i would like to just for the record if we're looking back over the last 10 years note that the vinyl revival while real was not a huge thing. It was a minor story that had layer upon layer upon layer upon layer that was interesting and fun to talk about, but maybe not as as consequential as we as we made it seem like it was at the time. The numbers were small, but it's still a thing that's big enough that there's a, just this fall I read that there's a new record pressing factory, 50,000 square foot factory opening up in Virginia. It's going to open up in January. And just the fact that there's somebody out there who's willing to pour enough money, they see enough of a market there that they're going to pour money into it and open a new pressing factory. And that, and that's true that it, across the globe, there are other pressing factories that have been opening up as well. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, there couldn't be new ones because the, uh, there were no new record presses um, since the 1970s, I think. Um, they just stopped making them. And so all, all of the records that were pressed in the 90s, all the records that were pressed in the 2000s, and for the first part of the 2010s, were all pressed on vintage machines that, if something broke, had to hand make a part or cannibalize an older machine to to get a part that would that would would replace it they became very expensive um when a plant would shut down there would be a big 
you know, like race to get the old to get the old presses. Now they're making new ones for the first time in in decades. And yeah, it's never going to go away entirely. It's it's a it's a real thing. And it, I'm glad that vinyl is is here to stay. It's a wonderful thing. But it's uh it didn't topple the CD. It didn't topple the MP3. It's a it's a strong niche, but it's a niche. We're about to run out of time. We're going to get booted out of the studio. But one more artist that I want to talk about before we go. In December, at the end of the year, in, in 2014, we got uh, one more artist returning after a long break. D'Angelo had been f- nearly 15 years. And- yes, D'Angelo was like the the guy who, he was the sole godsend, right, of, of the generation, put out two incredible albums. The last one being Voodoo, which, again, critically held. And, you know, he it's, it felt like he was on the verge of becoming an artist right out of a lot of the the 70s, 60s mold in terms of, you know, Sly Stone. He was going into this much funkier space. And, you know, right at his height, right at his peak, he kind of, he didn't necessarily disappear. He kind of seemed to be struggling with how long it was going to take him to make this follow-up. And it took 15 years. (laughs) And what he came back with was Black Messiah. Um, Was he able to recreate the thing that people love most about him 15 years earlier or, or advance his sound in any way? I think he was. I think he was in a lot of ways. Again, it, it, it got compared a lot to Sly Stone, interestingly enough, to uh, there's a riot going on. And it had a lot of that kind of redux funk feel. I think the important thing about Black Messiah is that he was speaking to a lot of political things going on in the country at that time. You know, Black Lives Matter was just kind of starting and there hadn't really been a strong um, musical answer to this movement yet that was being experienced in the country. You know, not like there has been now, but he was kind of at the forefront of that at the time and it felt it felt pretty necessary he said he put the record out in response to um, police shootings of, of, of young, unarmed black men. You know, he'd been sitting on this record, or not sitting on it, been working on it for for years with, with Questlove and, and, a, and a team of just incredible musicians. And it sort of seemed like everybody knew that he was doing it. It sort of seemed like maybe he would never actually put it out. And then he's spurred to action to, to release this thing. And it really felt like it completely encapsulated this moment where... A response was needed, was desperately, desperately needed, and he provided it at the very, very end of 2014. Yeah. Well, we'll go out on this uh, uh, Sugar Daddy, D'Angelo and the Vanguard from his record, Black Messiah. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks certainly. a lot, Robin. All right. For All Songs Considered, I'm Robin Hilton. Did you know that over 15 million people a month listen to NPR podcasts, according to PodTrack's podcast metrics? 
Check out all our shows at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts.